John chapter 10, verse 31 to 42. This is God's word. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is God's word. We're in the last moments here of the public ministry of Jesus. So the Gospel of John uh, records the life of Jesus in his public ministry from the beginning all the way through until really uh, chapter 12. And then from chapter 12, the remaining is his private discourse with his uh, disciples right before he is then betrayed and handed over and arrested and executed. So this is uh, like the last moments of Jesus' public ministry. At the end of chapter 11, we read very clearly that Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. So these are really significant moments for Jesus as he moves closer and closer to what he knows is going to happen. That is his arrest and his subsequent execution by cross. And here in these last moments, Jesus gives this one final appeal to the Jews, uh, at least before his full trial. The appeal we see in verse 38 is where he says, even if you don't believe me, Believe the works that you've seen, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, this is a gracious appeal to a people who are stubbornly rejecting him. We've seen their stubborn rejection of him time and time again. We see that beginning in our passage from verse 31. What's happening? Well, they're trying to kill Jesus. They're trying to stone him to death because he has just said in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And they are effectively putting Jesus on trial here. This is what's happening. It's like a mock trial. But the difference uh, between this trial and a fair trial, a fair trial would afford the uh, defendant an actual defense. But in this trial here, they begin with the verdict and the punishment, which is that he is a blasphemer and he's deserving of death. And they try and carry out the punishment immediately then and there. And here is a very poignant picture of our Saviour in this Good Shepherd discourse. Think about this. In the last moments of Jesus' public ministry, he is put to an unjust trial by 
stubborn, unbelieving Jews who, as we saw last week, have just demanded that Jesus reveal himself as the Christ. They say, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And Jesus then goes on to explain that he is one with the Father, which is him asserting his divine status. And what do they do in response? They try and kill him. They try and carry out their punishment then and there. And if we just feel the weight of this for a moment, just feel the weight of this. This is Jesus as the judge of the world. He is the judge dwelling in human flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. And this judge has come to save sinful people. And here we see this judge being judged by the sinful people. What a picture we see. What patience and mercy must Jesus have had to face the barrage of false accusations. All the while, Jesus had complete authority and power to destroy all of his enemies. He had complete power and ability to, and yet he doesn't lay a hand on them. He is immensely patient And more than that, he mercifully here gives this one last appeal. He says to them, even if you don't believe in what I'm saying, believe the works. Look at the works that I've shown you. And if you look at those works, you will see that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So let's look at this final mock public trial that Jesus put on before his ultimate trial in the end, which will lead to his execution Here in this little trial that happens here, we see three stages. We see the accusation, we see the defense, and then we see the final appeal. So we begin with the accusation. This is the accusation of the Jews that Jesus is a blasphemer and he must be put to death. From verse 31, we see this. And immediately after the Jews pick up stones to stone him, Jesus answers them and says, I've shown you many good works from the Father, For which of them are you going to stone me? And they, of course, say it's not for a good work. It's not for a good work that we are coming to stone you. Rather, it's for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, here is a bit of irony in their accusation here. Notice the irony of their accusation. They say, you, Jesus, make yourself God. God. Now, they are right in one sense that Jesus had made himself something, but rather than Jesus making himself God, the reality is, of course, that in Jesus, God has made himself man. That's what has happened. That's the miracle of the incarnation. We read this in the beginning of John 1, the word who was in the beginning with God and who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. God made himself man. That's an incredible reality. The eternal God, Jesus as the eternal God, has made himself man. So their accusation is somewhat right that a transformation has happened, but of course, the incredible reality is that God has made himself man. Jesus has always been eternally God. He has not made himself God. Rather, the eternal God has made himself man, and that is the only way in which man could be saved. So although the Jews are completely ignorant of this, they are at least right 
in following the trajectory of Jesus' claims here of being one with the Father. They are right indeed that he is asserting a divine status. Notice that unlike our Jehovah's Witness friends or Arians of the third and fourth century, the Jews don't miss what Jesus is saying here. They very clearly understand that he's saying, I'm God. This is a blasphemous statement from their perspective because they know exactly what he is saying. Not even Moses or Abraham, the, uh, from their point of view, the greatest of prophets ever claimed a oneness with God. No one ever claimed that. And yet Jesus, time and time again, asserts his status as God in the flesh by revealing this oneness, this unity that he has with the Father. He said in John 5, 17, just as the Father is eternally working, so am I working. That's why I heal on the Sabbath. In John 8, we went over this a few weeks ago. In verse 58, Jesus very clearly says to the Jews, before Abraham was, I am, which is him saying, I'm Yahweh, here in the flesh. And now in John 10, Jesus says that he holds his sheep. He holds his sheep with an eternally strong grip, just as the Father holds the very same sheep Because if you're in his hand, you're in the Father's hand. If you're in the Father's hand, you're in his hand because he and the Father are one. So their accusation is right that he identifies as God, but they are, of course, completely wrong and misguided in their response to this. And their response reveals the rebellious natural state of the human heart. This is what we saw last week, that the response of the Jews really reveals the rebellious natural state of the human heart. We saw last week that unbelief doesn't necessarily mean you don't believe in God. Unbelief is where you demand that that God fit in with your preconceived ideas. So the Jews, time and time again, are referred to as unbelievers. We see that because they are demanding that God fit in with their preconceived ideas is rather than humbly accepting God for who God says he is. So the two pictures that we see in this accusation here and really in the rest of the Gospel of John, these prominent pictures, one of which is this picture of the rebellion of humanity seen in the Jews' constant demand of Jesus to fit in with their preconceived ideas of who a Messiah is. But the second picture we see is this poignant picture of the mercy and patience of our Savior, of the mercy and patience of Jesus. The Son of God mercifully comes to save man from destruction, and man's response is to mercilessly look to destroy the Son of God. That's what we see here, this picture of the rebellious state of humanity, and yet the patience and mercy of our Savior to come and save those who are lost. So there is the accusation that we see. The the Jews claim that Jesus makes himself God. Jesus is very clearly revealing that he is the eternal God who has made himself man. This is the incarnation. Now in verse 34, we see Jesus' defense. Here's where Jesus offers a response. He buys some time in a sense. Jesus will not lose his life a single moment sooner or later than what had been foreordained. So although they try and stone him to death, he is able to continue the discussion going with this defense. And in verse 34 and 36, Jesus turns to the very law that the Jews believe they are keeping. So he refers to the law here. And of course, law is used in a broader 
context here. Sometimes the law and the prophets together simply make the Old Testament. So here Jesus is referring to the law in the broader context, referring to uh, the combination of the law and prophets to make up the Old Testament, because the passage he's referring to is in the Psalms. And it's Psalm 82 where we have this scripture. And if you do have your Bibles there, turn to Psalm 82. This is what Jesus refers to here where he says in verse 34, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. Now, this is where God in Psalm 82 is speaking of this divine counsel. It's quite a beautiful psalm where it gives this picture of this divine counsel and the Most High God is coming to judge certain rulers. Now, Jesus refers to this small statement here within the psalm where it says, this is God speaking and God says, I said, you are God's. And Jesus says, if scripture therefore calls others gods, then he's saying to the Jews, why are you angry if I call myself the son of God? Now, two important things. Jesus is not using scripture here to affirm that there are other gods, like uh, Mormons may do to believe that everyone will eventually become a god. This is not what that scripture is saying, nor is Jesus saying that because the title gods was given flippantly in the Old Testament, why are you upset with me if I say I'm the son of God? That's not what he's saying. There seem to be two levels of this for us to rightly understand why Jesus refers to this passage in the Psalms. The first level is to do with the content and context of the Psalm. And the second level is really to do with the way in which Jesus uses this in his argument. So the first level is to do with the content of Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is a judgment Psalm against these unjust rulers. So it's this picture of this divine counsel and it's as if the most high God is summon, summoning everyone to come and he's about to pronounce his judgment amidst all of these unjust rulers. So notice in Psalm 82, it begins by saying God has taken his place in the divine counsel. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, gods there is sort of used in the sense of the rulers. And the picture we have in Psalm 82 is the most high God taking his seat in the divine council and he's about to hand down his judgment. And it's very fitting, notice, that in the context in John 10 of the Jews here creating this unjust trial against Jesus. These unjust rulers of Jerusalem at the time, it's very fitting that Jesus should now point to a scripture from the Old Testament that gives this trial setting where unjust rulers are about to be condemned by the just judge. It's very fitting that Jesus turns to this. Notice then back in Psalm 82, the judgment that God gives is to rebuke the rulers for their injustice. He rebukes them for their partiality to the wicked, for their neglect of the weak. And so he rebukes them for all of these ways that they've mistreated people. And then in verse five, he says, these people have no knowledge nor understanding. And then finally, we get to our verse in verse six. God says, I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, there is debate 
that we won't get into as to whether these rulers that are referred to in the psalm are earthly rulers or if they're angelic beings or if this is referring to other cosmic deities. But I don't believe we need to understand exactly who they are referring to. What we can certainly see is that it is referring to certain rulers, I believe most likely angelic beings. But whoever it is referring to, the point that we see from the context of the psalm is not that this gives anyone divine status. Rather, when God says, I said you are gods, the point is that he goes on to say, nevertheless, like men, you shall die. Like princes, you shall fall. So you may be in a godlike position of authority because clearly they are rulers. But Yahweh is saying, like men, you are going to die. You're going to fall like princes. That's the point. So what is clear from that psalm is that in the midst of all of these unjust rulers, these unjust judges who act as gods in the sense of their authority, the point is that they will fall. They will fall like men and it will be God's judgment alone that will stand. And that's the hope of that psalm. So that if you notice, it finishes in verse 8 of Psalm 82 with saying, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. God is summonsing his people. And then there is this call to notice that he is the just judge. And the, the finale of the psalm is to say, God, bring judgment. You're the only just judge. So arise and bring judgment because you will inherit the nations. Now, this could be part of what lies behind Jesus' use of the psalm here. It's very interesting that just as Psalm 82 anticipates the true judgment of God amidst all of these unjust judges, Jesus is the ultimate judge of these unjust judges who, though they put him on trial, eventually they will all stand before him and face the wrath of the lamb who was slain. He will become the just judge who inherits the nations who will put them on trial. Now, that's the first level. I think the second level is really the main point here of why Jesus uses this psalm here. He is making a lesser to greater comparison. So though we have that foundational level of Jesus referring to this uh, passage where unjust judges are judged, notice the way in which he uses the, 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 the small part of that psalm. He is saying, if the scripture came to those who were called gods, so if the scripture came to those who were called gods, and this title was given to those who were actually going to die like men, if that came to then, then how much more should I receive the title, the son of God? It's a lesser to greater point that is made elsewhere in scripture. So for example, in Luke 18, I'll explain this for you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but I'll explain this for you. In Luke 18, you might remember the famous story of the persistent widow who comes before the unjust judge. And this story is this widow keeps coming day after day after day to this unjust judge and she's pleading for justice against her adversary and the judge is basically ignoring her because he's unjust. But eventually, because of her persistence, the unjust judge ends up giving in to her. As if to say, I just purely because she's bothering me, I'm going to give her what she wants. And Jesus actually uses that, psalm, that passage to say, this is what an unrighteous judge will do. How much more will our father 
Give justice to those who cry to him day and night. The point is a lesser to greater. The point isn't to look at God as an unjust judge. The point is to say, wow, if a persistent widow can get justice against an unjust judge, how much more will we receive justice from our God who is perfectly just, who is perfectly fair? So that's the point here. And likewise, Jesus, back to our passage here, is saying, does not the law say... I said you are gods to those who were in God-like places of authority. Well, how much more should I receive the title son of God? Given that I am God in the flesh, he says, how much more should the one whom the father set apart receive the title son of God? How much more worthy is Christ whom God the father set apart to leave the riches of heaven and take on the poverty of a servant in order to redeem his people? How much more should that one receive the title son of God? That's what Jesus is asserting here. This is part of his defense. He's saying, if you understood in the slightest who I am, if you understood in the slightest who I am, you would not be arguing over titles. You would see that I am more worthy than anyone to receive the title Son of God. I am more worthy than anyone to receive the worship that God alone should receive. So this is his defense. And if we have not already seen the mercy and patience of our Savior in his defense. We see it even more in his final appeal from verses 37 to 38. So Jesus says here, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now here is the merciful appeal to those who have unjustly condemned him. I mean, they've just tried to kill him, not for the first time. They've just tried to stone him and he's still there saying, even if you don't believe in me, believe in the works. Look at what I have done. Believe in them and you will know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe in the works where Jesus turned water into wine. Back in John 2, to show that the new messianic age had come or when he cleansed the temple in a miraculous way and then said to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And we, of course, know that that was pointing to his death and resurrection. He healed both the nobleman's son when he wasn't even in the same physical place and he healed the invalid of 38 years to show that God's desire is indeed to bring about a healing and a restoration for his people. Jesus fed the 5,000, more like 15,000, to show that he is the source of all life and sustenance for our souls. And in John 9, he healed the man who was born blind, that the man himself who was healed said, never in the world have we heard of anyone who had been born blind being healed. Never in our lives have we heard of anyone who was able to open the eyes of a man born blind, and yet Jesus comes along and does it with ease to show that it is only in Christ that we receive true sight. These are simply the works that John records. He says later on that if we wrote everything about Jesus' life, the whole world couldn't contain the books. But these seven particular signs, six at least, the seventh really will be in chapter 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. These are more than enough 
to reveal without a doubt that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is doing things that only God could do. He is saying things that only God could claim. And so he says, look at these works. Look at what I have done. And if you truly look at them, you will see that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, this is interesting. This is what we are meant to be seeing about the works of Christ. We're not meant to be seeing some flashy magician, some cosmic genie who's able to perform great signs. We're not meant to see a Messiah who can simply provide helpful resources, some master chef who can feed 15,000 people with a tiny bit. We're not meant to see a helpful resource. We are meant to see a unity between the Father and Son. Jesus says here, if you look at these works, you will see that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. In the works of Christ, we are meant to see God in the flesh doing things that only God could do, that have the Father's stamp of approval upon them. We are meant to see a complete unity so that everything Jesus does, it is as though the Father is doing such is their unity. So much so that Jesus will go on later on to say to Philip, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. If you're looking at my face, you've seen the Father because we are one distinct persons. And yet we are one of the same will. Our desires are the same. See, here is what makes the love of God so incredible. In the works of Christ, we see a perfect unity between Father and Son. We see the Father stretching out His merciful hand of salvation. That's what we see in Christ. The Father saying, here is my Son. I'm stretching out my arm of salvation by giving my perfect Son And all of this is done in perfect unity. And in this, we see the self-giving love of God. Here is what makes the love of God so astounding. Because if Jesus is not the eternal God, if Jesus is not the eternal God dwelling in flesh, then God is not self-giving. He's merely sent a prophet, which is still a very merciful and gracious thing to do. But he's not self-giving. But if Jesus is the eternal Son of God, If Jesus is the God who has existed for all time, then we see in Jesus in the flesh, we see an immeasurable ocean of love in God actually giving of himself to save his people. It's a self-giving love. And Jesus is saying here that the works that he does shows this unity. It shows that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, and we are giving of ourselves to save rebellious sinners. We're giving of ourselves. God himself has sent his son himself to save rebellious sinners. It's a self-giving love. And there is a gracious invitation for us to come into this unity. This is the wonderful thing. There is this gracious invitation that in Jesus, the father stretches out his hand and he says, come into this unity, come into this fellowship. So John, the gospel writer, says this in his first letter written likely to a church in Ephesus. And he says, we proclaim, that is he and the apostles proclaim to you followers of Jesus so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, 
Jesus Christ. This is his call. He's saying, come into this fellowship. Come join into this fellowship that we have with the Father and with the Son, because they are one. And by the Spirit, you are brought into this beautiful, harmonious fellowship that has existed before the foundation of the world. And that's what we are invited into. That's what the works of Christ point to. This perfectly unified relationship between the Father and the Son. And he invites us to know and continue to know. Notice in verse 38, Jesus says, If I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand. Now, in the original language, know and understand is the exact same word. The first know is just in past tense. The second know is in present ongoing tense, which is basically a fair translation. It's Jesus saying, so that you may know and continue to know that the Father is in me and I am in the Father, which is the Christian life. We know these truths and then we spend the rest of our lives continuing to know them every single day, again and again, and we will barely scratch the surface, and yet it will be enough for us to frolic in for all eternity. We may know and continue to know that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. So this is his final appeal. He says, believe the works, so that you may know and continue to know that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And immediately after Jesus gives his final appeal, they try and seize him again. But because Jesus will not lose his life a moment sooner or later than what had been foreordained, he escapes. And in verses 40 to 42, we read that he goes back to the Jordan where John had first been baptizing. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now, here is just a final nugget of application for us. Notice here, John did no signs, but he faithfully testified to the truth. And so it is for us in light of the works of Christ. We do not seek to perform signs and wonders. We do not seek to make ourselves great. We seek to faithfully testify to the truth of Christ amidst a world full of apathy and coldness. We seek to faithfully testify to all that we have seen and heard in the life of Jesus Christ so that it may also be said of us as it was said about John. So and so did no signs. There was nothing flashy about their life. They didn't really do anything all that great, but everything they said about Jesus was true. Everything they said about a loving father was true. Everything they said about a righteous judge was true. May that be said about us years down the track in eternity. Those who we have spent time with, those who we have come across. We faithfully spoke about Jesus Christ. We didn't do any signs or wonders, but everything we said about Jesus was true. Everything we testified to was true. May we have that same resolve and humility to faithfully testify to what is true. Now, as we wrap this up and wrap up the Good Shepherd discourse from John 10, let's just zoom out a bit to grasp the full picture of this, thinking of uh, all that we have seen in Jesus revealing himself as the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10. We've seen today that in this unjust trial, of Jesus, there are these accusers. And 
We think back to what Jesus said in the beginning of John 10, that there are these thieves and robbers and there are these hired hands who do not care for the sheep, but rather they are like unjust rulers. They rule over the sheep and they cause the sheep harm. And Jesus reveals himself as the good shepherd who comes amidst all of these unjust rulers. In the midst of these unjust rulers, there is this shepherd who comes to lay down his life for sheep. See, in order to truly seek and save his sheep, this is what Jesus reveals, that he must lay down his life. The shepherd must become the lamb led to the slaughter. So we think back to passages like Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone. Everyone has turned away. And yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the picture of humanity a seemingly hopeless picture. Everyone turns away. There is not one, not one who does good. All turns away. And yet the Lord lays on him, the good shepherd, the iniquity of us all. Now in John 10, I think we see the the foreshadowing of this humiliation. It really is a humiliating picture in Isaiah 53 of this lamb led to the slaughter. And in John 10, we see almost a foreshadowing of this. Notice Jesus faces this barrage of false accusations. He constantly has death threats. They're actually trying to carry out their attempted murder. And what do we see in the end of our passage? He has to escape. He has to escape from their hands, almost as if he is helpless. But of course, we know that he is not helpless. He is walking the path that had been ordained for him to walk from before the foundation of the world, which is why the very next verse in Isaiah 53, after Isaiah 53, 6, we have Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In this false trial that Jesus has put under here, we see this foreshadowing of the the humiliation of Christ that we will see in his final trial and his execution, where he indeed becomes the lamb led to the slaughter. He suffers horribly and he does not open his mouth to escape, but rather goes all the way to a brutal execution as our sin is laid upon him. And he becomes the scapegoat taken outside of the camp. But notice here in this false trial of John 10, Jesus does open his mouth to give one last appeal, to give one last gracious appeal to the Jews to look at the works and believe, to look at them and believe. And so the call goes out, of course, to us today. And so we give the call to many others today to look at the work of Christ on the cross and believe. Look at the work of Christ and believe. Look at your sin laid upon him as the lamb led to the slaughter and trust in him. That is the call. And in calling us to believe in Christ, 
God is calling us to forsake ourselves, to have our sins laid upon the lamb on the cross means that we recognize our sin before a holy God. We recognize that we can lay no claim of merit to approach God, but yet because he has laid our sin upon himself, we believe that there is an ocean full of grace to forgive those who come to Jesus Christ. And there is an abundance of grace for all those who recognize their sin before a holy God and who come to Christ as the Savior of the world, as the shepherd who eternally holds his sheep, who tends to his flock. So this is the call that goes out to us and indeed the call that goes out to you today to look to Christ and believe. Now, finally, we remember, just as Psalm 82 reveals, remember the ending of Psalm 82 that we went over, Arise, O God! Arise, O God! Judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. See, of course, the story of the Good Shepherd becoming the lamb led to the slaughter is not a story of a helpless lamb being slaughtered. That's merely a scene in the entire redemptive story. The lamb led to the slaughter is the lamb who will judge the earth and inherit the nations. The lamb led to the slaughter is the lamb whom people will hide their faces from and desire rocks to crush them lest they stare one moment longer at the wrath of the lamb. The Lamb is the Lamb who is worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. This is not a story of a helpless Lamb, though He assumes that position in order to save us from sin. The great hope is that we know that that Lamb who was slaughtered rose again, and He will be the judge of the world. He will inherit the nations, and we will worship the Lamb for all eternity.